Welcome everybody to the Crim Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jose, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen. Hi, everyone. And today we're speaking with professors Eric Balmer and Min Shea about their work on crime reporting, immigration, crime trends, and victimization. Eric Balmer is a professor and head of the Department of Sociology and Criminology at Pennsylvania State University. After completing his bachelor's degree in political science from Truman State University, he completed a master's in criminology and criminal justice from the University of Missouri-St. Louis and his PhD in sociology at the University of Albany, SUNY. Eric's research explores demographic, temporal, and spatial patterns of violence, the mobilization of law, and the application of criminal justice sanctions. He is currently conducting research on the substantial contemporary reduction in youth crime and the intersection of immigration, immigration policy, crime, and police notification. Min Shea is a professor and the director of graduate studies in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Maryland College Park. She received her bachelor's and her master's in information management from Peking University and her PhD in criminal justice from University at Albany SUNY. Her research interests include theories of criminal victimization, race, ethnicity, gender, and immigration, multi-level and longitudinal models, and spatial data analysis. She has received funding from the National Institute of Justice, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and the National Science Foundation to study violent victimization in relation to immigration and the making of immigration enforcement policies in different states and local jurisdictions. Thank you both for joining us today. We're very happy to have you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. All right. So before we get started, just kind of a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to start off talking about perceptions of immigration and crime over time, as well as crime trends with this focus on immigration. We'll talk about a paper that Min and Eric have recently co-authored together in criminology, came out in 2019. And then we'll talk about some of their future directions for research. Yeah. Let's get started. Jose, do you want to go ahead and start? Sure. So given that the topic for this podcast is going to be focused around immigration, crime reporting, and victimization, it's probably a good idea for us to start a, a little broad with how and why have perceptions of immigration and immigrants changed over time in the United States? Eric, do you want to start it? I mean, I'm happy to. When we thought about this podcast, we were, I don't know, I thought I was thinking, how do we get here? And one of the perplexing issues that we saw a few years back was there were lots of studies coming out about immigration and crime, many of which show that some of the safer places in America are those with larger immigrant populations. And yet polls would have you believe otherwise. So one of the trends and public perceptions that I think is relevant here is this question that Gallup and others have asked about Americans. They've asked Americans the contribution of immigrants and immigration to crime and the crime trends. So despite evidence to the contrary, a near near majority of Americans will answer that question by saying that immigrants or immigration is increasing crime in America. And so that's one reason that we became interested in understanding a little bit about why that might be. You know, would it be because people were suspicious of the science? Would it be for other reasons or, or, or whatnot? So we can talk a little bit more about some of that work that we've done. The broader kind of theme that you asked about 
it's kind of nuanced, right? I think when you talk about public opinion about immigration, you have to throw a lot of caveats out there. Big one that we hear about every day now is political orientation. So this be has long been, but increasingly become a politicized issue. So I think over the last two decades, it's safe to say that Americans have become increasingly tolerant of and accepting of immigrants, even as politically rhetoric and the conversation has become maybe more divisive. So that's one way. And then do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think the, you know, with the question you were asking about the perceptions of Americans toward immigrants, it's a very important one in the sense because we, as we said, immigration is part of the U.S. history. And so when we ask people about their perceptions, it's forcing people to sort of like confront their issues about their identity, their racial ethnic identity, talking about the, both our past and our future of this country. So it's important to look at how historically the trends, either, either it's people's perception towards, you know, the contribution of immigrants to the U.S. or about their crime patterns will be very important in the sense that it's going to be affected by the social context. So as Eric mentioned, think about what happened during the last two decades, right? The crime has been coming down significantly. At the same time, the economy has changed into a service industry structure where we require a lot of immigrants to do the work that many Americans won't do. So there are reasons that why Americans and this, according to the poll data, when people are willing to talk about their perceptions, seems like to indicate they have becoming somewhat more receptive to the immigrants. I think it's affected by the fact that we see crime coming down, we see the economies really requiring a lot of laborers. And so these sort of like contextualized how our perceptions of immigrants which would mean that when those things change, so that if the crime trends change, if the economy changes, the perceptions of Americans towards immigrants are likely to change. So it's very important to understand the trend. So we're encouraged by seeing some warming attitudes change towards the immigrants. At the same time, we need to be aware of the situation like right now, for example, if the economy suffers for a long time would people start to blame immigrants for those issues that's likely pattern i think yeah and have you guys or do you know if there's any variation in these perceptions of foreign-born individuals based on race and ethnicity or is it sort of universal i guess that's a terrible word for it but like are there differences between groups my view think about this theoretically right <laughs> so there are different factors affecting people's perceptions, attitudes. So race ethnicity would be a very important factor because it's deeply rooted in what we call American identities. And therefore, both the race ethnicity of native-born, whether they're non-Hispanic whites, and then they're blacks, and then there are Asians and there are other groups. So there are a lot of papers like reviews you can read, talk about how these will become very important factors to affect people's opinions or attitudes. The same time, research also shows that there are within group heterogeneity. So you talk about Latinos, there are different nationalities, different groups. And that's, so, that's my take of it. It's like this, there are definitely race, ethnicity differences, but they are intersection. So like you, you interact with their class, with their social context and other characteristics like gender education. Eric? Yeah, I think that's very well said. 
you know, I think another kind of building on the education, I think social class is also an issue across cuts against race and ethnicity when it comes to immigration and source country of immigration. So that's another issue that that's sometimes hard to separate those things. Certainly in America, much of the rhetoric, much of the rhetoric we're about about crime until very recently has focused on immigration from Mexico. More recently, I think you see that broadening to other Central American and, and Latin American countries, as we've seen, you know, people flee those nations and, and come, you know, come to the border. But yeah, I wouldn't add anything beyond that. Yeah, I think about religion. So for example, you and their political affiliation, all those would be all have a relationship to race, ethnicity, and they're all together and need a lot of data to sort it out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point that we have all of these different identities really in perspectives that are coming together to influence how people are perceiving other people. Mm-hmm. Then that goes on to influence how they perceive them when it comes to crime. Yeah, that's so interesting. All right. So to kind of switch from immigration to crime and then bringing them together. I know it's been mentioned, especially by you, Eric, in our email dialogues, that the dialogue about crime and crime trends, it's largely political, it's too non-scientific, and that that's something that is frustrating to not only you, but to a lot of people, I think. And so just kind of a broad question, and then you talked about this a little bit in one of your previous answers, But how have crime trends in the United States changed over time? So with historical time trends as well. And then how are they looking now compared to even the 1980s or the 1990s? Eric has a paper on this. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. So, I mean, I think most people uh, these days know, you know, crime rates and violence especially, but this has been pretty universal. Universal to a point. You know, so what we're talking about really is street crime. You know, it's a different animal if we start to think about cybercrime and fraud online. But even forms of expression online that are violent, you know, in terms of cyberbullying and things like that, these have been coming down substantially for now 25 or 30 years. There's a caveat, you know, we just saw a bunch of violence erupt in some cities this summer. And so you mentioned how this you know, conversation tends to be one way in terms of policymakers and the public and then the other way in terms of research. So the research is pretty clear on this. There's been a long-term substantial decline where we're living in a world right now, at least in our country, but other nations too, that's peaceful. You know, obviously there are, there are exceptions, but the politicization of crime often misses that point. So, you know, you hear politicians, for example, talk about rising violence and there are some examples of that in, in a couple places, but we've still seen very low levels of crime. So that's one sort of very important backdrop. Part of the disconnection there is really with what we do as a country to study crime. We don't invest in tracking crime the same way we do, say, invest in tracking the economy, for example. So even right now, as we're wondering what's happening in our country, as the pandemic kind of rolls on and there's been unrest in certain places, we don't have the kind of data infrastructure in place to give us good answers about whether violence is increasing and to sort of check some of the claims that people are making. But just to your your answer to the question, you know, seeing very strong declines in crime in an era where we've seen pretty substantial increases in immigration. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think the 
point that Eric is making. That is, these questions would require data that at a certain kind of precision we don't have. We don't and and geographic levels, and also require we measure crime consistently across time and space. But using the limited number of data we have in terms of seeing this is a Change from the early '90s to now—it's very impressive, right? So, many many scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure it out, and many people would try to claim credit. <laughs> you know, so sort of like what happened. So it's, it's kind of important to see. At the same time, immigration was increasing, and part of because the immigrants are looking for economic opportunities. And so, when the economy is doing well, and we attract a lot of people, and when they become safer to come here, they will even attract more people. So, scientifically, it would be. Really challenging to sort out the relationship, but as far as the data available, that we have seen very little evidence to show that immigration would cause crime problems in the U.S. Then the question becomes, you know, like how do we sort out different types of immigration and how they are related to the crime issues? And I think that's where Eric and I come in. It's like you know, you sort of to see how the limitations of police data or database correctional facilities or those. Will tell you something about the crime, but because of the limitation of how we see when crime occurs and how that data gets into the official statistics, there's a big gap, and so that makes it very important for the country to have another data source, which is the surveys, to allow us to say something more about the immigration and the crime, and that's where I think we want to do work. I think that's very important. This was actually so I'm teaching a class, or I'm the TA for a class right now on juvenile justice and delinquency, and we、oh. just spent like an entire class period talking about crime reporting, which I didn't know as much about even three weeks ago as I do now, and it's just like fascinating all of the different limitations that come that are yeah, involved with it. Collecting data about delinquency is even more challenging, right?、Yes. <laughs> so. Very you know, interesting. Now I've run into a little bit of that too. So one of one of the projects that I'm working on right now, we're actually thinking of using the data set that you guys used in your paper that we'll get to in just a second. But also with gang research, you often hear, or we sort of learn that we have to take official police data with a little bit of skepticism and, and a grain of salt because you know like. Who is a gang member? What is a gang? And each jurisdiction will do it a little bit differently. And you know, we've seen some departments sort of getting hot water because of the way that they're doing it. So yeah, I think the more data points you have, or the more data sources you have, it is good, right? Because、mm-hmm. both have their limitations. That's right. So with that being said, I think we can move in, into your paper where you do look at a different. Data source than most immigration and crime studies、uh, that you mentioned, and that's your paper: neighborhood immigrant concentration and violent crime reporting to the police: a multi-level analysis of data from the National Crime Victimization Survey. It is in the journal Criminology, and it was published last year in 2019. In this paper, Min and Eric draw on four theoretical perspectives, as well as the Historical immigration context of the area in which the immigrant neighborhood is located, to examine whether victims are less or more likely to report violent victimization occurring in immigrant neighborhoods. 
in order to do so, they use 19 years of data from the National Crime Victimization Survey, which is a national survey of approximately 140,000 persons each year in the United States that asks questions on the frequency of crime victimization and the characteristics and consequences of victimization. Does that sound like an accurate introduction to your paper? Did I miss anything? <laughs> Great. That's good. All right. So we are going to delve into kind of this more theoretical elaboration that you guys have for the paper. But before doing so, there's a bit of space devoted to something that we've brought up, which is crime reporting or reporting a crime to the police for those people who don't know what crime reporting would be. And in it, you mentioned, and this just like blew my mind because I didn't realize how high it was, but you said that oftentimes more than half of crimes are not reported to the police. I figured, and Jose and I have talked about this, we were thinking more like 30%, which still seems high to a lot of people, I think. So 50% or more just seemed really surprising. And so can you elaborate a bit on why so many crimes go unreported, like generally speaking, so not specifically thinking about this community conditions perspective, but in general? Yeah, I think Eric and I both have done extensive research in this area. So I can uh, start. It's actually interesting because think about doing anything is there is a cost and benefit, right? And so when we reported more than half, that's on average. And therefore, there are certain types of crimes would have higher reporting rates. Certain types of crimes would have lower. So, for example, think about burglary or motor vehicle theft. Those tend to have higher rates because they have a reason they want to report because the insurance, even if you don't catch the person who did the crime, but you need the paperwork in order to file for insurance purposes, for example. But for violent crimes, there are reasons people being asked why you don't report. A lot of times, for example, people will say nothing can be done by the police because you don't know who did the crime, if it's a property crime. For violent crime, even if you might know them, but if they're a stranger or you don't know, actually the, the, the capture of these people would be very difficult. And then you have to put in the time in order to process the criminal cases. And then even if you know the people in order to prosecute them and bring them to justice, there will be a lot of uh, time investment. And therefore, crime reporting rate is always associated with the seriousness of the incident and whether the injury, whether there's a weapon, whether there are other kind of property loss, so on. And so that sort of like this rational choice theory is one important. And then there are social factors, like people's race, ethnicity, how they are perceiving that they're going to be treated by the criminal justice system. That's other factors. I think Eric probably have a lot more to say about this issue. Yeah, so there, you know, you might think, what are some of the reasons why people might not contact the police? One, one could be that they don't trust the police, that they don't have faith. Doing so is the best way to kind of handle the situation, whatever that situation might be. There's also ambiguity, you know, not around some crimes, right? You know, there are certain things that happen that we all know that's criminal, that's something that, you know, is illegal. But if somebody is, you know, being asked a question about an argument or something that happened with another person, they personally may not define it as a crime. They might define it as a disagreement, you know, so there, there is some gray area in some cases where we, good, reasonable people might classify something that's being described as a crime, but that person themselves may not. So, you know, I think there are lots of 
you know, potential disincentives. Others might be, we know that at least with violence, a large majority of those incidents are perpetrated by people we know. And so there could be motivations and various sorts to protect those people, to try to work it out with those people, whether they're a friend, a coworker, or a partner of some other type. So, you know, I think that reporting crimes to the police is useful because it engages a system that can help with respect to, to you know, prevention, you know, protection, deterrence, but it's not the only system. And Min and I have also written about this. There are lots of things that victims of crime might do, or even people who witness crime, to make matters better. You know, whether that is, again, sort of just protecting themselves or another person from a future attack or a future crime, or trying to remedy the issue some other way. You know, so they might reach out to a friend or to a social service agency. They might go to a medical professional. So they're, you know, the police are not the only means by which to accomplish what victims and others might, might wish to do. So all those things are probably why we've you know, seen for years half of crimes go unreported. But as Min mentioned, for some crimes and what comes to mind on the other end of the spectrum from, say, a burglary or motor vehicle theft, where you see roughly 80% probably of those are reported. Sexual assault and rape, it's closer to 30%, 35% or less. And so, you know, there's also issues of kind of a stigma and perceived impediments. Yeah, if you're really going to, this is going to be helpful for your research, I think, Eric and I, our paper on the annual review of criminology, we talked about those theoretical reasons why or why not people use the police or other services. That might be useful if you want to get an overall view of the theoretical approaches to this issue. I'll have to check that out because this is like this new found area that I think is really interesting for me. All right. So kind of digging now more into the paper that we're talking about. Can you talk about why crime may go unreported based off of community conditions or specifically within immigration or immigrant neighborhoods? Yeah, well, can I, I just gonna say one thing about kind of what motivated this project. And so lots of other people had studied immigration and crime, people we admire and respect a great deal. And there were a couple reviews of that research. And this kind of gets to what I was saying earlier, that those reviews essentially, you know, come to this conclusion that crime appears to be at least slightly lower in places with more immigrants. And yet, if you just watch a news, the sort of news feed, you know, you don't really see that in these continued references to the opposite. So, you know, Min and I share a very deep interest in measurement and crime data fidelity. And, and so one thing that we wondered about is, well, you know, possibly one could criticize m- much of the prior research that had showed less crime in immigrant areas because it's based on police data. And so if you think about it, if lots of crime goes unreported, and also there are reasons why people who live in immigrant communities might be especially less likely to report it, and there's lots of anecdotal evidence about that, but not a lot of research. That led us to think, well, let's explore this issue in a project. So that's kind of what brought us here. And then I'll pass it to Min to talk a little bit more about immigration and crime reporting specifically. But I just wanted to kind of provide that backdrop. Yeah, I think that's great. Because, yeah, in your paper, you do mention how it's like mostly anecdotal information that we know before your paper. Yeah, Yeah, as Eric said, 
what you often hear in media is if crime happens, immigrants are not going to report. And therefore, we like, let's look at this issue more theoretically. And then what's interesting, as you mentioned, we use multiple theoretical perspectives to look at this issue. We say, wait a minute, it's actually the story might be more complex, right? So if you think about the, like, if people don't have a trusting relationship with the police, and they may be less likely to call the police. So that's one reason why would they suggest immigrants may be less likely to call the police or areas with higher concentration of immigrants will not to call the police. But then there are also theories talking about how having a large size of immigrants may increase the social capital of area collective efficacy. And also it might create some inner group relationships, making certain groups in that area would be more likely to call the police because now they perceive immigrants as threats. So that when they see more crime, they wanted to make sure the police will know about these crime patterns. And so as we laid out in the paper, you can sort of see one theory, like uh, legal cynicism will suggest reduced level of reporting, but other patterns like collective efficacy, social capital or social threat, all those theories might suggest that the reporting actually might increase if you live in an area with lots of immigrants. And so we couldn't really solve this issue by simply looking at the theory, and therefore we decided it would be the best to test the theory by looking at the size of immigrants in that neighborhood to see how's that going to be related to the reporting. At the same time, of course, then that would mean we wanted to tease out the relationship, how this relationship might be dependent on people's race ethnicity, right? Being black, being white, being Latinos, being Asian, those things might be having a different relationship to in this relationship. And then we wanted to look at how the county, specifically of these neighborhoods in, in which are located, if this county is an area that's relatively new to immigration, and then they may have a different relationship with the police than in an area where immigrants have been there for a long time, so like New York City, so you have a relatively better relationship than relationships, say, for example, in Georgia. And so these are different ways to figure out how the concentration of the immigrants might be related to crime reporting, but that relationship might be dependent on people's race ethnicity or dependent on the specific social context of immigration. And that was the purpose, main purpose for our research. That's an awesome summary from what yeah. I gathered, by the way. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was fun. I think when, when Eric and I were come making the table about the different theories, I was like, oh, what's the best way to explain to the reader? Actually, it was very helpful for us, too, because you have so many, like, conflicting thoughts in your brain and trying to write it down. It was a very cool process in writing yeah. that. The table was very helpful. So you did an excellent job on that. <laughs> you know, like, I remember early on in this research talking with some people about it, not criminologists, by the way. And they're like, well, we, we all know that people who live in immigrant neighborhoods are less likely to report to the police. But that's kind of what, you know, men and I believe, you know, science is important, right? You know, so actually looking at data. And there are, there are several elements of our findings that I think are a little surprising. As we got into it, you know, there are all kinds of ways and the men described extraordinarily well there, nuances that I hadn't thought of. You know, I think many people assume that it's going to be 
that the logic would be less reporting in immigrant neighborhoods, but as Min pointed out, there are very strong arguments to be made in the opposite direction. We also developed, as we kind of talked it through, we thought, well, and also it's nuanced in the sense that, you know, when we talk about immigrant neighborhoods, what do we really mean? And what, when we talk about that in a theoretical way, what we're talking about is a relatively large concentration enough to where it would shape neighborhood dynamics. So that's a nonlinear kind of idea. And so we built that into the paper as well, which has really important implications for, you know, actually testing the idea with data. So, so I don't know if we've mentioned this already, but Jen and I were both pretty much unanimous. Like this is a really good paper. Like it is a really well-written paper. So you've talked a little bit about the theories that you incorporated in the paper. And Eric, you sort of started talking a little bit about the communities. But could you tell us a little bit more about the distinctions that you make between what a traditional and a non-traditional immigrant destination is? Sure, I can start. So uh, U.S. immigration history is interesting, right? Because you went through different time periods. And then... If you think anything from the 19th century to the big migration of all the European immigrants coming to the U.S., so they went through the process of you mostly having Western European, and then you have the Eastern European coming in. There was this fight between the Italian, are the Italians white or not? So all these are arguments. But then you go from the 1920 all the way to the World War II, and then up to the 1960s, there was a time period, basically the immigration significantly dropped, right, to the very low level, like almost, I think it was like 4% or so of immigrants living in the country during that time period. And then you have this immigration law in the 1965, where they allowed larger uh, number of Latinos and Asians to now become immigrants to this country. And so what it means is that the racial ethnic composition of immigrants suddenly changed, right? And therefore, when we were starting to study our paper, you look at, you start from the 90s. There was a 20-year period for immigrants to establish roots, particularly immigrants from um, Latin America and then from Asia to establish roots. And some of these areas have for that you know, time period have fairly large size of immigrants. And then they've been living there for a while. They have established roots in those neighborhoods. They have social services to help them. So in other words, is this concept of traditional areas would be those areas that have, you know, have has a large sizable immigrants. What do you mean by sizable? So we use the average percentage of immigrants in the country to decide that. So in other words, it has a history that people have lived in there for a long time, then therefore their social capital, in theory, should be stronger. And that would establish that those areas as an area that could have needed social network to facilitate the immigrants to live in those areas. But then you think about what happens in the late 80s when the Ronald Reagan had the Amnesty Act where you, a lot of immigrants become legal, then they suddenly they, they could move. So they left California or a lot of those places moving to part of like Southeast America and other, you know, the Midwest, all those places. They didn't have a large immigrant communities for them. And suddenly you have a huge influx of immigrants. And those are 
newer areas. So they're not traditional in the sense that they don't have the history of immigrants. Therefore, having a huge influx of immigrants and without a huge base for them, those are classified as non-traditional areas. And for that reason, there has been a series of work, people trying to define, find the distinction between traditional and non-traditional areas. And they tend to find qualitative differences in terms of how these people have been received in the local communities. So that's conceptually, think about, it's, it's mostly reflective of the migration patterns of immigrants originally in the coastal areas, and then they move inland to the different sections of the country and forming the newer areas. Eric? Yeah, no, that's a great description. I was just fascinated by some of the historical origins that I, I had forgotten about. The other, you know, the 90s really facilitated that. There was a major economic boom, housing boom, you know, that turned south eventually. But, you know, so you saw places like North Carolina and Georgia, Alabama, lots of the southern and then interior Midwest, Iowa, emerge as these places where previously immigrants hadn't lived in large numbers. And, and so you had large influxes there. It's really this distinction is a very rough proxy, and we recognize this as, you know, a sort of relative capacity or preparedness for incorporation. So, you know, the idea is traditional destinations are places where it is assumed, but there's some evidence for this as well, where, you know, relationships between police and citizens, for example, has had time to develop and rapport has developed even so to the point where you also have greater diversity on police forces and things like that. Whereas newer places, you know, you just haven't had enough time for those things to become established, not just with police and citizens, but within the community as well. So, you know, researchers like us have done this in part to distinguish between places where immigrants and immigration is established and where the kinds of resources and infrastructure and relationships developed in traditional destinations where that's less so in new destinations. Ideally, we would measure that directly, you know, and we've done some of that in our, our work, you know, to the degree to which people from different groups are incorporated in the local economy, for example. It'd be even better to tap into, you know, probably perceptions among immigrants as to how well they're accepted in certain communities and the kind of resources available too for that. While reading your paper and menu talked about this a little bit, I find it really fascinating how policies by administrations can really shake things up. You know, like, like if you ask my parents who their favorite U.S. president is, they'll tell you it's Ronald Reagan <laughs> because his policies sort of helped them become U.S. citizens and a lot of my family that came from El Salvador during the Civil War that was happening down there, it helped them become U.S. citizens and once that happened, it sort of like, you know, taking the leash off a little bit and they kind of started to move a lot more freely throughout the country. So now I have family in like Chicago where the first several years that they were here, they were all clustered in the Pico Union area of Los Angeles where a lot of the Central American immigrants sort of cluster. So yeah, so I think that's really interesting how like these policies over time are sort of impacting what we're seeing now you know and so i think that we really built up a good foundation on your paper so I, I think it's finally time for you both to you know sort of hit us with the highlights of your findings of your paper 
Yeah, I think there's a graph we're we're proud of. So showing you <laughs> <laughs> the essential idea is that you really need to look at the context in which these、uh, neighborhoods are located. In if you think about traditional areas, and、uh, we see the reporting patterns are not that different from places with a lot of immigrants versus places with fewer immigrants. I mean, the only thing I noticed would be like if you only look at Latino, seems like there is a little bit of reduction for black and white. You barely notice the change, but any of those differences. They didn't reach statistic significance, so you would characterize as there's not much of a big impact on concentration of immigrants, which is actually consistent with some findings of city level analysis, like people done research in New York City or other places showing immigrant neighborhoods still have a high rate of reporting, you know, relative to other places, but. What's important for us is you actually can see a very clear difference now if you move to the counties where we correct classified as non-traditional areas, newer areas. There, you observe that significant change in the reporting, which is a nonlinear effect in terms of you have the percentage of immigrants reach a certain level around thirty-five percent or so. You start to see a significant drop. In the level of reporting, and that pattern was seen in all right, black and Latino groups, and which means this is a neighborhood-wide phenomenon, and that makes it important for us to show that because it's not just you know immigrants don't report or immigrant neighborhoods don't report to the police. It's more of a where do they live? What's their relationship with local police? I think that's the important story. Then, Eric, you want to have something to add? Great summary, man. No, I'll just restate what you said in a slightly different way, just to kind of reinforce it. And that is, you know, in the kinds of places where people, I think, often imagine immigrants living in our country. You know, these are traditional destinations, places like Miami, Chicago, L.A., New York, etc. There's really not that much difference at all in terms of rates of reporting as you go from neighborhoods with hardly any immigrants to neighborhoods with many, a large proportion. It's really in these new destinations where you find this very precipitous drop in rates of reporting. So this is what you often hear about in news media outlets and in lots of other sort of more observational type of, of studies, and it's a pretty substantial drop. And I think the other thing is it's it's not just Latinos; it's, it's whites and it's you know non-Latino whites and non-Latino blacks. But in essence, you know, in these newer destinations within our country. Rates of reporting for violence are very low, and that's something that I think we had to kind of tease that out in the data. That's a pretty prominent pattern in our study. Yeah, I feel like that has some pretty important implications. You know, the the major finding, Eric, that you just said. You know, that in these newer immigrant areas, you know, there's a very drastic difference with reporting. And so, can you kind of elaborate on? Like specifically thinking about more the general public and maybe even policymakers, what these kinds of findings really have implications for? Man, do you want to offer anything? I mean, I'm happy to. Sure. I think Eric and actually we were talking. Of course, we are trying to talk about policy implications, things through. But I think we agree on one thing: is that is 
any recommendations need to be based on data, right? And so because our paper is not assessment of any specific policy, and therefore we should think like broader in the sense that what kind of important message we're trying to communicate to the general public or to the law enforcement agencies. I think the important message here is that the suspicion that there is a pattern of underreporting is real, but that's restricted to areas specifically in the non-traditional areas. And we don't know why that's the case because we haven't tested specifically what caused those impact. But we can sort of thinking this is an important message that the law enforcement agencies in those areas should be aware of. And therefore, they can look at the data and think about how this may apply to their jurisdictions. And is it something to say about their relationship between the law enforcement and communities? If that's true, how do they address that issue? So that'll be specifically policy relevant. Or they, you know, they, they may find that their relationship is much better than the average level. And that could be important too, because as we know that all the jurisdictions in the country have taken very different approaches to immigration, right? Some would participate in the cooperation with federal agencies to do immigration enforcement. Some really try not to do it because they want to maintain the relationship with local communities. So all these different varying policies make their local patterns be similar to what we have found or very different to what we have found. So we think that's actually a good starting point for each agency to look at, we found the average, and then think about, do they fit into this pattern? And if they do, what they should do. So that's a good starter for a conversation, but not necessarily to say, oh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong in, in, in terms of specific policy. That's my take on this issue. Yeah, I think that's great. We're interested in exploring this a little further in some of our current research. And like one issue is, delving a little deeper into what this might mean. Is it really a function of the kinds of local federal partnerships that are occurring in some of these places, but not all, right? And so if, if that's the case, you know, these patterns could be driven by really concerns about immigration policy enforcement. And, or they could be broader concerns about, you know, just perceptions of police and what that might mean based on what people experienced before they came to America based on what they see in their, their local communities. Given that we see patterns like this across you know, Latinos, non-Latino whites, and non-Latino blacks, again, this is part speculation as well. I'm extrapolating a little bit, but it suggests something a little bit broader than just experiences that recent or you know, uh, even longstanding immigrants have, have had and brought with them. What it tells us, I think, is that the, you know, the police need to be mindful of the kind of messaging and the kind of interactions that they're having. I don't think law enforcement officials would necessarily be surprised by these findings, but they ought to be concerned by them. You know, I think crime reporting isn't per se an indicator of cooperation with the police, but it's one dimension of that, right? And so I think police often would be interested in, in reversing this kind of pattern that we're showing here. We don't have good science about how to do that. You guys are probably a little too young to remember this, but I, I tell my students all this. In reporting to the police increases in the 80s and the 90s, and we don't know why, but the nation did have this amazing 
campaign. You guys remember McGruff, the crime dog? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take a bite out uh, of crime. Yeah. But it's part of a broader effort that the police have pretty consistently, but off and on. And it's certainly somewhat haphazard across places. Engaging the community as a partner in resolving crime. And so, you know, this kind of pattern suggests to me that that's the kind of effort that's needed. You know, this isn't a them versus us kind of thing, but that, you know, there's some interactions and relationships that need to be developed in these places. Because uh, ultimately, reporting a crime doesn't necessarily yield a positive outcome, but it certainly would put, you know, the police in a better position to help resolve issues and prevent future crime. So that's one thing I'd add. So the research side of it, and you sort of hinted a little bit at sort of where we should kind of start thinking about going next or, or some of the things that we should be looking at. We've sort of mentioned to us that you're both working on some pretty cool sounding projects funded by the NSF and the NIJ. Could you tell us a little bit more about this new work that you're doing? Yeah, sure. I think Erica was the lead for the NIJ project, and we both also worked on the NSF grant proposal. And so the idea, like we said in our paper, we're talking about the future directions. One thing we think is particularly important is we really need to know information about these individuals' immigration status. And then NCVS data starting to collect information on citizenship. And so that becomes very important indicator. So now we can look at not only just the percentage of immigrants in the area, how's that going to affect crime and reporting, but also look at the individual's citizenship status. How's that going to relate is that would allow us to look at native. So native borns, are their experiences with crime and crime reporting be very different from foreign born? individuals. And so that's a very important question. And then Eric was the one suggested, and we can look at the local area percentage of illegal immigrants, right? That will tell us even more about the relationship between immigration and the crime, because you know, like in surveys, it's impossible to ask people, are you illegal? So in using, but we can get some information about their collective status, so areas, whether we have a lot of illegal immigrants living in those areas. And therefore, we think these two projects adding together would really allow us to gain more understanding of the relationship between immigration and crime. Also, more directly answer a lot of critics' question about should we even though we think immigration is good for the country, but should we be worrying about illegal immigration? So these are very big questions that we're hoping to use the data to address those issues was. Yeah, you know, we started working on this, what's now been a multiple year project. And it's sort of at the early stages of the last election. And, you know, this is 2015, roughly. And, you know, I remember a conversation with men about this. And, you know, we wondered what this was a big issue in the last election. And there was a lot of rhetoric, a lot of claims being made. We were familiar with the research in our field, but we wondered what kind of contribution could we make. The two questions that we were really initially interested in, one was, well, does do rates of reporting vary across neighborhoods, you know, according to immigrant status, you know, and concentration of immigrants? And that's what we talked about today. The other one was, well, okay, what if you used a data set other than the police-based data? 
that we think could be problematic. Would you still find this protective benefit, the lower levels of crime in immigrant neighborhoods? And so that was really those two questions. And we did find that. So we find using survey data, we find less crime in immigrant neighborhoods in another paper that we published. And so kind of rewind to last year as the elect, current election cycle starts to heat up, what we were hearing was a slight shift in rhetoric, not just about immigrants and about immigration and crime, but very precisely about undocumented, what current administration will call illegal immigrant immigration, and how that affects native-born, U.S.-born citizens. So we thought about how can we contribute further to this literature and to the ideas and the conversation. So our NSF project, as Min mentioned, is focusing on how citizenship, individual citizenship shapes victimization risk. And then our NIJ-funded project is partnering with a group called Migration Policy Institute, which is a nonprofit in D.C., and their specialization is to estimate the number of undocumented immigrants in local areas in the United States. So you can find them on the web, but they have estimates published for states, but we've partnered with them to generate estimates for U.S. counties. And we're going to link that to the NCVS individual level data. And so we can answer questions such as, you know, if you are a U.S. born citizen, again, this is the rhetoric that people are using, not our own. If you are a U.S. born citizen and you live in an area with a, a large fraction of undocumented immigrants, are you at greater risk for victimization? Some claims are that, yes, that's the case. We have theoretical reasons to highly doubt that, one of which is that mo- most crime is in group. That is, you know, most U.S. born citizens are going to be victimized by a U.S. born citizen. But we're interested in the empirical side of that. So that's what the NIJ project is focused on. Partially, the other issue is with policy. Same kind of rhetoric. You know, lots of the current U.S. policies against immigration as they unfold in local areas is predicated on this idea that these policies will keep U.S. born citizens safer. And we're not aware of any empirical science to demonstrate that one way or another. And so we're, we're exploring that very directly with the data that Min, Min mentioned. These are huge questions and important ones. I'm really excited to see what you find from these. So these are just in the beginning stages, right? So it'll be a little bit before we see anything that comes out of them. Yeah. Right. The, you know, with the COVID. <laughs> so, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, we have a paper under review, but that has to go through the process and see what's going on. But majority, the big components of it would require access to restrictive Mm -hmm. data. And you know how difficult it is now to get restrictive data. So we're in the process of trying, hoping we'll return to normal with the COVID going on. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of moving parts to it. Nobody that we know of has analyzed, for example, just the county level data on undocumented immigration. And so, you know, men and I care a lot about data quality. And so we're, we're beginning to kind of assess what, what the data might mean. We're also engaged in collecting data from this really wonderful website. If, if, you're, if you're bored, University of Syracuse University hosts it. It's a data set called TRAC, T-R-A-C. And it's just this repository of immigration enforcement activities. What they've done is submitted, I think, every day for the last you know, many years, freedom of information requests to ICE for information about arrests, deportations, and whatnot. And so we're, we're developing a large database on that. We're interested in exploring those patterns, too. I think that that's an untold story 
where and who and what's being done there in terms of immigration enforcement. So, yeah, we've been gathering a lot of data. So it, it may be a little while before papers emerge, but we'll hope that soon. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. So keep me in the loop. <laughs> yeah, um, me too. All right. Well, I think that's about all we have time for. Do either of you have anything you would like to add before we close out the podcast? I actually just have a question. I'm curious. So who are the intended audience of this? I'm so excited about students doing this kind of activities at the same time. I'm wondering, like, do you think your, how do you contribute to the dissemination of information? I mean, it's one of the, the, the big questions. How do we talk to people who are not in our field, I guess? Yeah. And that's one of the goals that we have for this podcast is we're really hoping to cast this broader net. So kind of tying in with this conversation that we've had about a lot of information on crime being very political and not necessarily grounded in scientific evidence. And so we're hoping that this doesn't just reach academics. That's obviously going to be one of the you know populations that's interested in this, but we're hoping to cast this broader net and get it out into more of the general public sphere as well. Yeah, I, I admire the work. I just think that's so good. Yeah, that's sort of the reason why we kind of stay away from the polynomial logistic regression type talk. Discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah, we hopefully this will get out to as many people as possible. And I'm hoping it's something that someone like my sister can understand you know meant not to knock my sister she's a bright person but you know she doesn't really care for statistics and and you know sort of what I do she just finds the end result fascinating my parents really want to listen to this so <laughs> yeah. well, tell your parents or your sister Jose come they can give us a call and I'd be happy to talk and talk and talk so. awesome. <laughs> sounds good yeah well Thank you very much to you both. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your, what I can only imagine are super busy schedules to speak with us. Yeah, thank you. And we've sort of talked a little bit about the projects that you're working on, but is there anything else that you'd like to plug, you know, maybe a paper that's coming out soon or something in the near future that, that people should be on the lookout for? Well, as I mentioned, we have a paper under review, so we'll see about the immigration. But if we have any new update, we'll definitely send you guys the link. That would be awesome. We, yeah, and I would just encourage people to, to follow you guys. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, we are recruiting the 2021 cohort. So if you know anybody, don't just try because I know, Jorge, you, you said you just stayed the, and only applied to one program, but we're recruiting new students. So send your friends to Maryland. <laughs> no. okay. That would be awesome. Yeah. No, so you I did apply to several. I just applied to one such program. <laughs> yeah. So where can people find, do either of you have like Twitter or anything like that? Or is it just email, Google Scholar? When I'm on like LinkedIn, ResearchGate, but I'm not on Twitter. I'm not in social media. I know I am so old-fashioned. Surprisingly, but, a lot of our guests haven't had Twitter, so you are not in the minority as far as our guests go. Most of my colleagues do, and I deal with it that way through them. And so I hate to be the old person here, but I, I don't know. It doesn't sound all that appealing to me, but email for sure, our website. That's funny. Okay, so you heard it here, everybody. Just at Eric's colleagues and they'll pass it on. 
right. <laughs> yeah, email would be the yeah. easiest way. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thank you both very much once again. We, we really do appreciate it. This was a lot of fun and very informative in you know, what I think is a very important topic. Well, thank you. This is yeah, really thanks fun. very much. Thank you. All right.